At Online MedEd, we walk you through every topic in detail, so you're ready for the boards and the wards. We're going to finish off the trauma series with some diseases that actually aren't trauma-related at all. But these are going to be diseases in the realm of toxicology that an ER is going to see. So the same people who use the trauma bay are going to be the ones who have to manage the initial presentation of these diseases. Let's start off by talking about alcohols. And by alcohol, I don't just mean ethanol. You want to be able to separate ethanol from isopropyl alcohol, from ethylene glycol, and methanol. And what I want you to do is separate out these based on the alcohol, how you get it, and whatever special thing you need to know about that particular alcohol. Is there an anion gap? Is there an osmolar gap? And what do you do to treat it? Seems like a lot, but I'm going to break it down for you so it becomes really, really easy. There are two alcohols that have an anion gap. Two you have to know, and that's going to be ethylene glycol and methanol. Alcohol and isopropyl alcohol don't have an anion gap. Because they're alcohols, the alcohols are osmotically active, so all four are going to have an osmolar gap. So the way you might get thrown into this alcohol business is with, by having a question about hyponatremia, and then you get a serum osmolality, which is normal despite a calculated serum osmols, which is low. That's because that equation that you use to calculate serum osmols, sodium, BUN, and glucose, don't include alcohols. So it is possible then that you have an osmolar gap, and they give you a little clue in the vignette, and they want you to go alcohol, especially if there is the presence of an anion gap as well as an osmolar gap. And here's the cool thing. Remember, we're not discussing the, the presentation yet. If you see anion gap and osmolar gap and you're an alcohol question, the treatment is supportive for both conditions. So it doesn't matter that you have ethanol or isopropyl alcohol. If you're in an alcohol question and it's asking about management, if there's no anion gap, all you do is supportive care. Intravenous fluids protect the airway. On the other hand, if you have an anion gap and an osmolar gap, you're in an alcohol question. What you want to do is prevent breakdown to the toxic metabolites. Both ethylene glycol and methanol respond to fomepazole. Because it's not the ethylene glycol or the methanol that's doing the damage, it's their metabolite. And so if you give fomepazole, you prevent the breakdown of ethylene glycol or methanol into its toxic counterpart. If fomepazole doesn't work, you can use alcohol. That is, you infuse alcohol to prevent the damage. All right, so then how do you look at the history and figure out this person might be exposed to one of these? Well, ethanol is in alcoholic beverages. This is what the person is trying to ingest because they like the way it feels, right? And most people have experienced this or have experienced someone else who has alcohol intoxication. It's going to be the person who has decreased inhibitions, cerebellar symptoms, potential retrograde amnesia. And if you drink too much, 
nausea, vomiting, and it might kill you. The problem with ethanol is that it's zero order. No matter how much you drink, the liver can only process the same amount per hour. So if you continue to consume alcohol past your limit, you can end up dead. But most alcohol intoxication simply results in supportive care and then a hangover the next day. Isopropyl alcohol is in rubbing alcohol. This is a cleaner. So the person who's going to drink isopropyl alcohol is someone who's trying to drink alcohol in the form of ethanol, but can't get access. So this is going to be teenagers, those who are trying to get clean, or those who are too poor to afford alcohol, such as the homeless. Ethylene glycol comes in antifreeze. Antifreeze is sweet tasting, so you might get an accidental ingestion in pediatrics, someone who's drinking antifreeze because it tastes sweet, or again, someone who can't afford the alcohol. Ethylene glycol is particularly bad because it causes renal failure. But that also helps you remember what you can do to help diagnose it. Because antifreeze contains fluorescein dyes in them to help you identify radiator leaks, you can also use it to make the diagnosis with a woods lamp. You take the woods lamp up to their urine and watch it glow. If it glows, and it's an alcohol question, it's ethylene glycol, given from epizole. Methanol causes blindness, and it is a product of moonshine. Now, there's a product on the market now called moonshine. It's not really moonshine. Moonshine is self-made alcohol out in the boonies. So one that's not processed in a factory can end up self-made moonshine can lead to blindness because you didn't get rid of all the methanol, a byproduct of making ethanol. If you see methanol moonshine blindness, give from epizole or ethanol. All right, so that's the alcohols. Two medications which are available over the counter which can cause some problems are acetaminophen and salicylates. Let's talk about acetaminophen first. Acetaminophen is in pain pills. It's also in fever reducers. And if you take too much of it, you're going to get drug-induced lug injury. So the patient is either going to intentionally do this, and that's going to be an overdose of the -the over-the-counter stuff, or they're going to unintentionally do it. The person who intentionally ingests too much acetaminophen is someone who chugs a bottle trying to kill themselves. The person who unintentionally does it is someone who might be on narcotic pain medications that have combination formulations with acetaminophen, and then they take acetaminophen in another way for a fever reducer or additional pain relief. Chronically, you shouldn't do more than 2 grams per day. Acutely, more than 3 grams is going to cause some problems. But regardless, if someone comes in with an elevation of the liver enzymes, that is the AST or the ALT, greater than 1,000, you should just reflexively order acetaminophen along with the other things that can cause that. The diagnosis of acetaminophen toxicity is made by getting an acetaminophen level. You do that at 4 hours and 16 hours from ingestion, and you compare it to the nomogram. You do not have to remember the cutoffs, and you don't have to know what the nomogram looks like. Just know that if you're above the line, acetaminophen is going to cause liver injury. So if you're above the nomogram, you give N-acetylcysteine. If you're below the line, you just observe. And know that because these people have really sick livers, or potentially can, if they develop fulminant hepatic failure, you're going to need a transplant. 
And generally, the person who just tried to kill themselves is probably not going to get a transplant, but someone who unintentionally did it might have a shot. Salicylates are the other medications, again, pain medications and fever reducers. But it's really hard to un unintentionally take too much. They're going to be found in aspirin. And what happens when someone ingests a lot of aspirin is two phases to the disease. Early on, you're going to get tinnitus. Nausea, vomiting, and vertigo. And a primary respiratory alkalosis. So this lets bind to the medulla and make you take a lot of very deep breaths. If you see a primary respiratory alkalosis, give consideration to salicylate toxicity. Late in the disease, and how people usually learn salicylates, is going to be the anion gap acidosis. And they become obtunded in a coma. Now, paradoxically, aspirin can be used as a fever reducer, but if you take too much, you actually have hyperpyrexia. And this is not to say that the absence of hyperpyrexia means the absence of salicylate toxicity. It's just if you see anion gap acidosis, obtundation, and hyperpyrexia, and those are the only three things there, salicylate toxicity. You make the diagnosis by getting a salicylate level. And the treatment is by alkalinization of the urine. You're going to eliminate these through the urine, and because it's an acid, you simply alkalinize the urine, so it binds to it, traps it in the urine, and releases it, and then you do forced diuresis. And the goal is to get the acetaminophen out of the body. So these are ingestions. You might also encounter some inhalation injuries, carbon monoxide, and cyanide. They're both a product of smoke inhalation. So when you suspect one, you should suspect the other. Carbon monoxide is so bad because it has an affinity for hemoglobin that is far greater than oxygen. So that even though there's sufficient oxygen in your lungs and then supposedly enough oxygen in your blood, since the, the carbon monoxide is bound to the hemoglobin, oxygen can't get on hemoglobin, so the oxygen delivery is compromised. That means also, since the hemoglobin is saturated, the pulse oximeter is going to be 100%. But really, they are hypoxemic because it's not oxygen-bound to the hemoglobin. It's carbon monoxide. So if you see someone who's been in a smoke inhalation and they've got headache nausea or vomiting, or delirium, and their pulse oximeter is 100%, don't be fooled. What you need to do is get the ABG and measure the carboxyhemoglobin. The treatment, unfortunately, is to let the carboxyhemoglobin wear off. And normally it takes about five hours to do that. But you can decrease the half-life of carbon monoxide by giving 100% of IO2. And there may be some role for hyperbarics. This isn't really proven yet, but it makes sense, and people are doing it. So if you find carbon monoxide injury, give them a ton of oxygen and wait it out. But if someone has a smoke inhalation injury or you find carboxyhemoglobinemia, you should also give consideration to cyanide toxicity. If you watch movies, spies are going to take a cyanide pill. If you study medicine, you've learned that medications can induce 
cyanide toxicity, specifically sodium nitroprusside. And while that's true, most cyanide toxicity is a product of fires of smoke inhalation, which is why smoke inhalation on its own can't help you differentiate. The person who's got cyanide toxicity is going to be really sick because it converts aerobic metabolism to anaerobic metabolism even in the presence of sufficient oxygen. So it's going to be a heavy lactic acidosis. The person's going to be obtunded. They are really ill, which is why the cyanide capsule idea for the spies makes so much sense. They get captured. They're dead in minutes. The patient is going to present super sick and is going to be cherry red. If you see cherry red skin or cherry red blood on an arterial blood gas, start thinking about cyanide toxicity. The diagnosis is going to be made clinically, and the treatment is with thiosulfate. In studying nitroprusside and hypertensive medications, you might have also learned about amyl nitrate. Amyl nitrate is still the right answer, but you want to avoid it most of the time because the most common cause of cyanide toxicity is smoke inhalation. You might also have carbon monoxide toxicity, and methemoglobinemia is going to worsen the carboxyhemoglobinemia. So you avoid amyl nitrates and smoke inhalation injuries if you can use thiosulfate, but it would be okay to use amyl nitrate in the setting of nitroprusside. All right, I know a lot of details. We're going to finish off with organophosphate poisoning. This is another one that TV loves. And yes, while they can be used as weapons of terror, most of the time you are not going to encounter organophosphates from VX nerve gas-tipped missiles. You're actually going to see it more commonly when someone unintentionally comes in contact with pesticides or when they're on medications for myasthenia gravis, the stigmines. What these compounds do is block acetylcholine esterase. So you can't break down acetylcholine. So acetylcholine is always active at the end plate. Eventually, if you let it go on long enough, what's going to happen is that it's going to cause an irreversible inhibition of acetylcholine esterase. So what happens is everything that can secrete does. And the mnemonic used to remember the symptoms of organophosphate toxicity is sludge. That is salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, gastrointestinal upset, that's to make the mnemonic work, and emesis. This is primarily the GI stuff that predominates, but you can also get bronchoconstriction if you activate acetylcholine over and over and over and over and over again. The diagnosis is clinical. And especially in the case where it's a weapon, you've got very little time to undo it. Atropine is first line because atropine is going to block acetylcholine activity. It reduces the symptoms but doesn't do anything to the acetylcholine esterase. So you have to prevent the irreversible inhibition by doing prolidoxine. 2-PAM chloride. All right, lots of little details in this one. Generally considered low yield, but you might see a question here or there. So the highlights are this. Methanol's moonshine, anion gap, use fomepazole. Ethylene glycol, renal failure, use a woods lamp, anion gap, use fomepazole. 
Isopropyl alcohol is ingestion of rubbing alcohol, supportive. Alcohol intoxication is covered in psychiatry, intoxication and withdrawals. Acetaminophen causes liver injury. Check a level. The level's high, give N-acetylcysteine. If their liver explodes, do transplant. Salicylates are going to cause tinnitus, vertigo, and a primary respiratory alkalosis. If you catch someone with elevated salicylate levels, alkalinize the urine to excrete it. Carbon monoxide has a normal pulse oximeter, but they're very sick after smoke inhalation. All you can do is give them oxygen. If you see carbon monoxide poisoning, think about cyanide toxicity, cherry red skin, cherry red blood on ABG, give thiosulfate. And organophosphate is going to be secreting from everywhere upon exposure to a chemical. Give atropine first, then prolidoxine. That's toxic ingestion.